Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is Arabiyat with Linda and Suraya. This is Linda Khouri. And I'm Suraya Al-Alawi. Today we're going to be talking about Arab America. What does that mean? Well, there's a lot of questions around it. We're very largely visible in the media as terrorists and people who are subjected to war. And people think they know a lot about us. But in reality, on an individual level, we're actually a largely invisible community. And there are reasons for that and that we want to discuss. We want to explore why are we largely invisible? Because most Americans can't really recognize an Arab when they see them on the street. So there are a lot of issues associated with all of that and a lot of interesting history that really hasn't been explored by too many people. But in the last couple of years, there was a book published, and that's what we're going to be talking about, Arab America, by Nadine and Nubed. She's our guest today. Nadine's work has been largely covering Arab America, researching Arab Americans, and exposing this demographic that hasn't really been studied or researched, understood. So it's exciting that we have her here with us, and hopefully she'll shed some light on the history of Arab Arabs in America and our present. And that's, and that, you know, the history of why... Arabs. So, I mean, as growing up in schools, in American schools, you know, I'm Pal- my father's Palestinian, my mother's Jordanian. You know, you're going down the list on your star test and you're like, OK, I got there's Latinos, there's Asians, there's black. There's even Native. I mean, of course, there's Native Americans, but there is no slot for Arabs or Middle Easterners, except for sometimes they mention you is the in the parentheses right next to the white or caucasian race you know including middle eastern north african you know my whole life i'm like white people this white people that we're so different our experience is so different and then i go on this test and somehow i'm included in the white category which is weird because our our experiences as people is completely different now there's a lot of diversity within the arab community but one thing is that we do have a very similar experience when it comes to how we're perceived by like white america right and there was a recent article on i think it was bbc and then al jazeera picked it up by khalid baydoun and the title is called Are Arabs White? He goes through and just sort of explores why are Arabs classified as white and what the downfall of being classified as white but not having any privileges of being white. It's interesting because Arabs have been here since the 1800s. So we came along with all the other types of immigrants. So it's strange that our history in the United States is not very well known, very widely known. And I think part of that is maybe because of the white category that a lot of Lebanese just sort of got subsumed into. And I say Lebanese because those are the early immigrants. They were Lebanese and Syrian immigrants. Yeah, they got subsumed into that, into whiteness. And so I think maybe that's why for other immigrant groups, even like Italian-Americans, for example, who are considered white, right? They're European, but their history as Italian-Americans in this country is very well documented. We know so much about that. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know so much about it. 
but we sort of just disappeared. We just disappeared as a group. The only reason we came back into into vision, whatever, is because because of Islam. The narrative around Arabs has just been Muslim, and we just want to explore Arabs in America, regardless of religion. So everything that encompasses being an Arab here in uh, in the Bay Area is just a huge Christian community, Palestinian Christian community. And they and they don't actually try to just be like white. They actually like very much stay within their community. Most of those came from in the sixties and the seventies, though. Mm-hmm. They're not the early ones. Yeah, I guess we're gonna, we should talk about you know the differences of the first wave of migrants that came from like what was known as Greater Syria. So that included Lebanon. So that was the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, that right? was eighteen hundreds, and they seem to have completely like. I feel that they've disappeared into, like, they've kind of just been uh, assimilated. Yeah, just total assimilation. I mean, that makes sense because uh, they were Lebanese and Syrian Christians. And physically, I guess they they didn't have characteristics that were super, like, you know, foreign looking. Right. Yeah. But even the Palestinians today. I just think that after a certain period of being in a country, you actually just assimilate. Like, there's no choice but to assimilate. Yeah. But, you know. Asian people cannot mm-hmm. assimilate. Africans and black people cannot assimilate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Latinos. What's your definition of assimilation, though? Bra- well, I just mean like you cannot. You, you, like, you, if physically, at any point, yeah, yeah. If at any point, assimilation is no one is questioning where you're mm-hmm. from, right? Right. I'm not saying that's not like the, my definition of assimilation, mm-hmm. but just in regards to this conversation, mm-hmm. what I mean is no one's coming up to you and saying like, "Oh, but where are you originally from?" Right. So people will just take you as an American, and that's it. That is a privilege afforded to white people. You know, it's just like, "Oh, okay, you're from you're from Minnesota. That's all good." Mm-hmm. But if you are Asian, they'd be like, "No, no, no." But where are you originally from? Mm-hmm. Or if you're Indian, be like, "No, but like, where are your parents from?" You know, so. That's what I mean. Arabs can get away with assimilating because our like phenotypes tend to be, especially the Levantine Arabs, tend to be similar to Europeans, right? To, to Italians and Greeks and whatnot. And so over time, you anglicize your name. You, if you're not Muslim, that's not something that's keeping you from assimilating. And you know, you have light skin and light eyes and whatever, light hair. And so. You're just white. And so people don't question your identity. They don't question that you're American. And that's what I mean is just like if you are someone who has physical characteristics that contradict whiteness, then you're going to always be on the outliers of an understanding of what an American is. You'll always be questioned for your authenticity as an American. So that's just that's just what I mean by that. But no, you brought up a good point earlier about Islam becoming the identifier of Arabs. Well, first, I I don't know pre-60s. I just know that the Bay Area community of Arabs who came from a few villages in Palestine, really. And, for example, my church, St. Thomas More Church, I mean, they still do the mass in Arabic. So And their kids, like some speak Arabic, some don't. But they're definitely very closely identify themselves with the Arab community. But the Bay Area is like a kind of unique hodgepodge. And we should kind of maybe one day look at the differences between like the Bay Area Arab communities and then the ones in like Michigan and Dearborn. I'd be curious to see how they're. Right. But that's the the Dearborn community Mm -hmm. is Muslim. I know. So like Muslim Arabs. Yeah. That's the thing. That's a lot of the pockets of like Arab communities that are like recognized as, you know, Arab communities like Anaheim, um, Dearborn, Michigan, uh, what was that city in New Jersey? Anyway, they're all they tend to have a lot of Muslim Arabs and mm-hmm. that's why they get identified as like a hodgepodge mm-hmm. of like 
Arabs in an area. Mm-hmm. But the Bay Area doesn't come up. Honestly, it does not come up. But we don't have like a, an area where there's just a bunch of Arabic signs. And I mean, they're just they're, no. They but I mean, create, like just like, the fact that in like San Francisco, any liquor store you go to, any I know. little corner market is run by a Palestinian. I know. So in our conversations of like Arabs in America, the Bay Area doesn't really come up. The community itself doesn't know about Arabs in the Bay Area. Dearborn is the number one. But they have created like a little physical space that feels Arab and you can eat Arabic food. You have the museums. There's like the intellectual atmosphere. The Bay Area community did not do that for whatever reason. I think because like also you're right, like Arabs here aren't like uh, relegated to like one area in the Bay Area, like one city where it's just like, oh, that's where all the Arabs are. Kind of like Fremont and Indians. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the Indian community has Fremont. There's you could you mm-hmm. go around and you will see like many Indian families. Yeah, Afghans. But too. like if you come, if, <laughs> there's nowhere in the Bay Area that's just like you're gonna go there and you're gonna see a bunch of yeah. Arabs, right? So, so that's what like I, you know where I live, is. San Bruno. It's like there's a ton of Arabs there. Yet like no one would think of it as an Arab place. Like there is a lot, but nobody like wears their Arab badge on their like shirt. You know? Right. So it's not like there are markets that have like Arabic writing yeah. on it. There's you know. One. I mean, there's like <laughs> yeah. in 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 Brooklyn, there's Bay Ridge. In Bay Bay Ridge is very Arab. Mm-hmm. Like you walk around. Arabic signs, women in like hijab, young kids running around, um, you know, speaking Arabic, different like food stores that are just for Arabs. And, you know, and and yes, there are like non-Arabs living in that area, but it's definitely recognized as an Arab, like Arab area in Brooklyn. New York tends to be like divided into like ethnic communities, but that's because New York was like the first place all the immigrants came um, and they sort of each formed like a community. And it's been changing, obviously especially now with gentrification and whatnot. But I think because, like, California is, like, so far, so far away, by the time people got here, it was, like, maybe people came not wanting to just be Arab. They wanted, you know, to have opportunities and stuff, but they wanted their kids to assimilate. I don't know. Based on my experience with the community, they're very, like, and I want to bring this up. I want, these are things I want to address. One is they carry with them, um, that, you know, pride of being Arab. Okay, that's fine. That's a good thing. But then there's that, it's like they took the Arab culture from like ni- the 1950s and froze it in time. Yo. Dude, I know. Yo. <laughs> that is so true. That is so true. Okay. And so we have to like grow up with people who like, even though they're in the California world, you know, you have to somehow like cater to that mentality as like their daughter or son, you know, be like the Arab that they want you to be, yet somehow still assimilate into American culture and be successful. And they want all those things for you, but they oftentimes contradict each other. And that is a huge struggle, that there's that pressure of being, like, true to both cultures. But really, like, the mo- the Arab culture in the modern day, of course, there's many Arab cultures, depending on where you are, has, like, progressed with the with West, I guess you could say. It's progressed to modernity. So things that my cousins can do in Jordan, like, have boyfriends. Like, I could not do when I was in high school, you know? Like, boys could still not call my Hey, house. listen, I don't know. Your cousins are an exception. Because yeah, I they was are, not allowed. I, I grew up in Lebanon, and I was not allowed to have a boyfriend, okay? My parents went from, you're not allowed to have a boyfriend, to now I'm old enough to be like, okay, so when are you getting married? <laughs> I know. I'm like, how and did that, you- <laughs> that That jump from, you don't talk to boys, they're the enemy, to... When are you getting married, you old hag? <laughs> exactly, exactly. That, like, how like, how do you, you deal with that? I, you know, you just, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I can't, I mean, like, my experiences, I think, would be, I'm not an, like, a, I'm not an Arab American who grew up here, so my experiences are going to be, like, really different. Like, coming across Arab Americans here, 
I feel like either their parents are super chill with stuff or they're like super strict. Like at UC Berkeley, right? The Arabs that I met, a lot of Arabs, and they tended to be Muslim, their mm-hmm. families were, like, pressuring them to get married yeah. early on. Like, they would have them meet boys and stuff. And I'm like, my family literally does not do that and has never done that. And to right. this day, I'm 27 years old. They are not doing that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I I Me grew too. up. I grew up in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things. Like, that's one of the older, like, traditions of, like, right. here's I, someone has heard about you. They want to talk to you. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. You know, d- doing that. And they tend to be, like, other Arab American boys. So, you know, there's that practicing that type of culture mm-hmm. is, is around here. And it's so strange because you would think that, you know, we would move past that or we would, like, have new, different traditions of, like, meeting people, you know, being in the United States. But maybe maybe because we're not centered in one area as Arab Americans, people have a fear of, like, we don't want our children to lose where they're from. And so, like, mm-hmm. maybe that's why they like hold on to, the like, super traditional stuff. But when you're in an Arab country... It's easier to be like, you know, it's it's easier to change your culture a little bit, to change practices and stuff, because you're not worried that you're going to lose your authenticity because you still exist in an Arab country. No one's going to be like, oh, well, you know, you're not Arab anymore. So here's that thing. That's the question of cultural authenticity. It's like, what is an Arab? What is authentically Arab? It's like, what? So if if my cousins, like they have a boyfriend. Okay. And I do think they come from a class that's slightly privileged, but okay. They had a boyfriend. I don't think they had boyfriends in the sense that like American girls do where you can just freely have like sexual relations with your boyfriend. Like it's a normal thing. I mean, like let's not assume that American girls. No, no. But generally like having like sex in high school for an American, it's not that weird. You know, like they think it's normal. A lot of them, you know, it's not like culturally like tabooed, you know, that like you become sexually active like by 16 or something here. Right. It's in the movies, you know, whatever. And it's also just, you know, like I've experienced it because at the same time that I wasn't basically able to talk to boys or I'm just joking. That's an exaggeration. But that, you know, you were kind of like you, you didn't want them to call your house or you couldn't freely go hang out with them by yourself. So the fact that like it, my, my cousins had more lax experience, but they live in the Middle East versus like me having the opposite experience. But I live in America. What is the authentic thing? Like the one that's from the Middle East or the one that's from the Arabs that live in America? Like there is no I don't think we can. I don't think we can have like one solid definition that would apply to Arabs in Arab countries and Arabs in the diaspora. Arabs, I think in general, Arabs are like really open to having people identify as Arab because we don't get much love. So like we're so desperate for that that we'll take like Selma Hayek's like one quarter like her quarter blood of being Arab and just run with it and be like Selma Hayek she is Lebanese oh my god and listen she does not speak Arabic she does not speak Arabic she she doesn't really address being Arab has she even been to the Middle East she has she went like recently she has she produced like the Jibran Khalid Jibran the prophet um the animation for it and i think she was in it so she went to lebanon for that and let me tell you in lebanon you know what they did they basically rolled out the red carpet for her they treated her like royalty and i'm like we literally shit on each other all the time mm-hmm. you know you do not hold as much respect for someone who like carries like who has been so proud to be arab their whole life and like are trying to do something about it but mm-hmm. for selma hayek who reps mexico so hard which she has a right to she's Mex- she's mm-hmm. basically completely mexican you know but we want her to be Arabs. We want her to be Lebanese so badly. Like, yes, yes, yes. You know, like, whatever you want. Because she's recognized as, like, beautiful and successful in the international community. Right. And so I think, like, you know. And that's an issue with our communities. 
Sorry, I just banged my cell phone. <laughs> that's an issue because we are constantly looking to the West. I think that's an, an, an it's an internal issue that we have to deal with. Well, like, you know, we're, we're, we, we are people who have been colonized. We're people who have been told your culture is lower class. Yeah. You like you're uneducated. You're filthy. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not to our you're ugly. You're not to our level. You're not to our standard. So ever since we've been colonized by Europeans, again, we've been colonized by, like, everybody and their mother. Mm-hmm. Um, ever since we've been colonized, we have been like, okay, but how do we get How do we get to be like the French? How do we get of to course, be like the British? Of course, and that's totally, like, France Fanon, like, analysis of, you know, the colonial people. It's like we internalize their, our own, their hatred for us. Listen, and I see it. I see it of every course. day. I see it every I know. day. Like, my mom, my mom just will be like, I hate curly hair. She's like, you need to straighten your hair. Yeah. Because I have I have big curly hair and my mom has straight like you're hair too dark and she's like and she's like in denial literally my hair curls like hella hard my it's hair curls and she goes she goes no she's like no it's straight you just curl it I'm like mom every day I get out of the shower and I curl every strand like what do you are you serious do you not see me when I come out of the shower are you kidding me do you not see <laughs> the frizz that funny. happens on a humid day like That's... what is going on she's so in denial or like my nose I have a big Semitic nose mm-hmm. right I have a fucking Arab <laughs> nose. And my mom will say, so when I was 16, they were like, okay, so nose drop time. And I'm like, "Uh, how about no? How about let's not? You know, it's like, why do you need my nose to be smaller? I'm I'm not Lebanese, man. I'm not. No, no, you're beautiful. Or Syrian Syrian family. Okay, that's. But you guys do that, though. That area, like, you guys wear I your know. badges of your no, your plastic surgery badges to the grocery store. I mean, sorry, your your, your Band-Aids. Right. It's I just, intense. you know what? Like, it's a strange obsession. It's a strange, strange thing. And, like, when I was when I was a kid, I'm very, very light-skinned. I'm, like, very mm-hmm. fair. Um, but when I was younger, you know, my mom would take me to the beach and stuff, whatever, and I was, like, super tan. And my, my dad's side of the family are, like, really against like darker skinned people mm-hmm. and my cousin would call me Sri which means <laughs> Sri Lankan which they use in a derogatory way to say yeah. like maid like yeah. you're low class you're filth yeah and, from which like, is the India so area. problematic yeah and they yeah. so I kept being called that when I was younger mm-hmm. so do you see like it's like but a lot of Arabs are dark skinned like course. why do we Hello, have an issue look it's, at me I'm like, it's so beautiful too it's like it's beautiful all shades of skin color are beautiful oh, like why do we have to sit and and but okay so exactly back to the original point is that we've internalized the hatred that the colonizers brought to our countries for sure that is for sure now what we need to do as a society where we need to take responsibility is we need to reclaim our dignity as people and that means to accept our like biological makeup to accept our culture to wear it with pride so bringing it back to arab yeah. americans like so what does that say about arab americans you know like are arab americans trying to unlike arabs in arab countries are arab americans trying to like prove their arabness as opposed to like being westernized being like listen we're still arab even though we live in a western country you know, or are they trying to become westernized and ignoring that Arab part? Or or is it both? I can't deny my Arab roots, but I also can't deny that I feel very American in many ways. And then how do you find peace and balance right. in yourself? I mean, I wonder I wonder for like Arabs who are Arab Christians. I mean, you physically don't look white, right? I look at you and I'm like, okay, she's not white. I know mm-hmm. you're Arab. I know you. But there are some people who like could get away with being yeah, white my and are Christian. Yeah. Like, I think I think that's when it's like harder. Like again, like what I was saying at the beginning is, if you don't ap- have an appearance that like opposes yeah. whiteness, yes. then 
does it make it harder to navigate your identity? Does it make it easier to just be like, well, I don't really need to rep the Arab side if I don't want to? I think it does make it easier. I do think it makes it easier. And actually, and we'll talk about that with Nadine because we're going to wrap up soon. But even in my own family, there's three girls. I'm the oldest. I am the darkest. Nura is the middle one. She's kind of in the middle. like she, But she looks generally – she would look like a Latina or something. I do too, but I look like a dark Latina, like an indigenous one. <laughs> she looks like a Spanish Latina. And Dina could straight up just be white. I mean she has the curly hair. She looks like she has ethnic features, but she's very fair-skinned. Her, skin, her hair is light color. She doesn't have any kind of – Still, her features are pretty uh, mild. You know, there's Mm -hmm. nothing crazy there. And she's the least interested in, like, her Arabness. She's also the youngest, so usually it gets diluted by, like, the third or fourth one. You know, like, they get it gets less and less because the Arabic was spoken to me by my parents even more than her. So my Arabic is stronger. But also people have always perceived me as dark, you know, and... Just so I always had to encounter like my Arabness more than she has based just on the color of my skin. Right. And I think I think that's like something that I've you know, I've heard about um, like mixed kids of like black, black and white mixed right. kids. So there's like uh, Quincy Jones's daughters. Right? So there's Rashida Jones and Kadada Jones and Kadada looks more black and mm-hmm. Rashida looks white. Mm-hmm. And and I like. I don't remember where I read this, but it was like that same kind of struggle. So, again, it goes to like your look like Rashida Jones doesn't have to own up to being black. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only reason people know she's black is she's because she's Quincy Jones's daughter. Mm-hmm. But if her dad wasn't famous, you could mm-hmm. be like, oh, she's just like a tan white girl. So like basically you your physical appearance has a huge impact on how you experience life in America. Yeah. I mean, and that's how that's how America designed yeah. itself to be. Yeah. When you came in, they, they immediately put you like into racial white, categories. Yeah. Native, you die. You're going to be exterminated. If you're black, you're going to be our slaves. White people run things. Right. They own property. They own capital. That's it. So then everybody else that falls into that spectrum, those are the po- extremes. Right. And then you've kind of had to place yourself in that, that framework as like an immigrant coming in. Uh, after the break, we're going to be speaking with Nadine and Nebir on more of the history of Arab Americans and our current status. Uh, So stick around for that. That was America Yahelwe, which translates to America the Beautiful, performed by Gio Berberi and composed by Syrian American composer and pianist Alexander Ma'alouf, who had his own company, Ma'alouf Phonograph Company, his own label, Ma'alouf, and conducted Ma'alouf Oriental Orchestra. The track was released in 1928. Today we have via Skype Nadine Nebir. Dr. Nadine Nebir is Associate Professor in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies and Asian American Studies at the University of Illinois, Chicago. She is author of Arab America, Gender, Culture, Politics, and Activism, and she's co-editor of Race and Arab Americans, as well as Arab and Arab American Feminism's Perspectives, winner of the Arab American Book Award in 2012. Thank you for, for speaking with us, Nadine. Thanks for having me on the show. So your book, Arab America, covers a lot of 
mostly the Bay Area Arab community, but you give a little bit about the history of Arabs in America. Before we get into that, though, we'd love to know a little bit about you uh, and a little bit about your work. My family immigrated from Jordan to the Bay Area of California um, in the 1950s and 60s. And um, I grew up mostly in California, and then I've lived in um, Egypt, uh, Michigan, and Illinois. I've been working as a scholar of Arab American studies and transnational Arab feminist studies uh, for several decades. I'm a professor at the University of Illinois in Chicago uh, in gender and women's studies and Asian American studies. And I've been uh, writing work that seeks to challenge um, really challenging questions that have faced scholars of Arab American studies, especially in terms of the ways uh, we often put in a great deal of labor challenging racism and Orientalism and Islamophobia. But what that's done is sort of covered up um, and, and kind of blocked us from dealing with difficult issues that take place within our communities, especially since if you deal with um, the tensions and hierarchies and power dynamics that take place among Arab Americans, whether it's domestic violence, sexism, homophobia, um, internal forms of oppression and racism, uh, classism. There's a fear of reifying racism or um, kind of contributing or being complicit in Arab bashing and Islamophobia. So kind of that fear of airing dirty laundry in public, that age old um, problem that a lot of immigrant and communities of color have faced um, in the United States. And so my work has tried to address that question of how do we address internal issues without reifying Orientalism. And so what I've been trying to do is put forth approaches that allow us to deal with internal problems by connecting them and illustrating that they're actually shaped within the broader context of racism and Islamophobia. And so, you know, we don't need to do one or the other, but we need to look at how the quote unquote internal dynamics are shaped by the quote unquote external community dynamics. And we need to look at all of them as interconnected and intertwined. Wow, that, that must be very intense work. And that's extremely rich work that I'm really glad that you're doing. I actually didn't even realize that was the depth of your work when reading your book. And that's something I actually want to I want to get back to those kinds of issues that you just discussed and your approaches later on in the interview. But to begin, let's go into a little bit about kind of a broader perspective of how Arabs got to America, when they started coming and wh where did they come from these groups? Can you kind of just give us an overview of the history? Sure. Um, so the, you know, generally, I mean, there were Arabs in the United States before this, but in the late 1800s, that's usually considered the beginning of like what's called the quote unquote first wave of Arab immigrants. And they tended to come from uh, what was called at the time Greater Syria, which is uh, a province in, um, was in the Ottoman Empire. And it includes the current countries of Lebanon, Palestine, uh, Jordan and Syria. But most uh, originally that that group, a, a great deal of them came from Mount Lebanon and they came for economic opportunity and most were primarily Christian. It's always important to think of what was taking place at the time in the United States also when the early Arab immigrants came at the turn of the 20th century. One of the issues is that early immigrants were considered by the United States as originating in Turkey, which at the time was part of Asia Minor, 
Uh, and it was there was an official U.S. policy that rendered Syrian immigrants as part of a, quote, questionable racial stock. And this is something that a scholar named Helen Samhan has written a, a lot about um, this, the racial uh, positioning of those early immigrants. And so there were uh, debates in the New York Times in 1909 questioning, you know, whether or not these immigrants were white or not white. Um, so there was an article in the New York Times, an editorial that the title was, Is the Turk a White Man? And so there were, and, and what's important is that at the time we have to remember that the way race operated in the United States is different than today. Then it was, um, the assumption is that race was biological, was based on, you know, your biological makeup. And so the extent to which a person was considered Caucasian would determine uh, their immigration status. And so it was really important to determine uh, the racial classification of these early immigrants to decide whether they would be able to get citizenship. And so there were a lot of debates taking place in the courtrooms, in, you know, among uh, U.S. government officials, among journalists about whether, you know, whether these quote unquote Turks or they were also sometimes called Syrians, um, whether they were white. It's really interesting that by the early 1900s, 1914, there was a court case that emerged that's often remembered, and it was in South Carolina. And it was a case related to an immigrant from greater Syria, uh, where a South Carolina judge ruled that Syrians might be free white persons, but not the free white person to whom the act of Congress had denoted the privilege of citizenship and he's referring to a 1790 privilege that was ruled to be intended for persons of European descent. So basically what this means is that ever since the early years of Arab immigration to the United States, um, Arab immigrants have been positioned um, within an ambiguous racial kind of place in America, where, you know, as you could see from this case, the judge is saying that they might be white, but they're not the same whites as the whites Congress denoted, you know, to be granted the privilege of citizenship. So again, it's like white, but not quite. It's that there are whites who are Europeans, and then there are whites who are not Europeans, and they don't fit the European descent framework. So whiteness was a determinant of being European? Well, in... In 1790, uh, whiteness was intended for persons of European descent. Citizenship was intended for persons of European descent, but it, whiteness was ambiguous and unclear because on the one hand, they're saying that Syrians are white, but they're saying that they're not European. Okay, so... So it's showing that whiteness was kind of shifting and complex and unclear. Was that because the immigrants kind of looked white, but then culturally didn't actually fit the European like way of life? Um, so that's a great question. It's basically the question. That is the question that all of the court cases debated, that, um, th that Syrian immigrants were using all sorts of different arguments to prove that they were white. Um, and then so was the so were the judges and the other people just making these decisions. So on on the one hand, um, one argument would be based on um, on descent, 
you know, and descent was related to origin. And that's why they were saying, oh, there are, um, for example, um, there was a appeal, an appeal of that same case when the South Carolina judge said that they were white, but not the whites that should get citizenship. The, the case was later appealed where um, there was a report that said they belong to the Semitic branch of the Caucasian race. And so they're different from the Turks who are Mongolian. So it's not just about how you look, but it was actually about, that's why I said, it's really important to remember that these debates were taking place at a time in US history where race was determined by your biological makeup. And your biological makeup was determined by your origin. Right. And here origin is, okay, are they Semitic? If they're Semitic, then Semitics can be argued to be Caucasian. If they're Turks, Turks were considered Mongolian, who would then, and then there'd be a debate, okay, are Mongolians uh, Caucasian or not? So, Okay, so at this time, they're actually differentiating between Turks and Syrians. First, they were saying that Syrians were Turks, and then they were saying, but they're not. Then the Syrian, then there was another report that said that they're Semitic, so, I mean, your questions are actually part of the problem, okay. that it was contradictory and shifting and ambiguous. Well, so how how did these um, immigrants, early immigrants, identify themselves? Because they were coming from the Ottoman Empire, from mostly Mount Lebanon. But was it Lebanon at the time? It, I mean, this is in the 1800s, so there was no Lebanon yet, um, not in the way we know it now. So when they came, even though they were like marked as Turks, by the U.S. government, how did they identify themselves? And did they all come from Mount Lebanon? Did they all come from the same region? So was it like they connected on that or did they come from different parts? And uh, due to that fact, they sort of dispersed. Yeah, so um, that's a great question that we need to distinguish how they were, how they were classified and how they classified themselves. So as far as how they were classified, which is what we've been discussing um, the reason why this question of are they Turks or not is important is because at the time there were Asiatic exclusion laws that excluded Asians. It wasn't clear yet whether those laws included the exclusions of Turks in Asia. And it was also confusing as to whether Syrians are Semites and therefore Caucasian. And that would make them different from Asians or Asiatic people, which is what they were called at the time. So these, these questions about how the U.S. perceived them, how they were received, it was really up for debate because the U.S. hadn't really dealt with these questions yet. And it was confusing. There were other questions. Was there Christian religious heritage? Would that distinguish them from other people of Asiatic ancestry who were Christian? So they, sometimes people made arguments about Christianity, making them closer to, you know, Europeans. Um, so... All, all sorts of questions here came up. Now, in terms of how they define themselves, they define themselves in a way that was extremely different from the way the U.S. was defining or trying to classify them. Uh, at the time in the Levant, in, in greater Syria, which is where they were from, um, and I said the specific area of Mount Lebanon where a more majority were from um, during the early years, people identified according to their family name or their village of origin. You have to remember that this was before the, the establishment of nation states or nationalist identities, like I'm Lebanese, I'm Syrian. I'm... So 
at the time, uh, because of the way that identity worked in the Ottoman Empire, the primary categories of identity were religion, uh, family name, and also uh, village of origin. So, so that, that just gives you a sense of the way people identified themselves. And I guess that's probably not too different from today, because, you know, even though we do identify with our, our nation states, we also immediately identify with our um, our village, family name and religion. And right. Yeah, definitely religion still. Um, yeah. So that shows that those earlier existing categories have continued and have just um, continued and maybe taken on new form in light of the new conditions. What motivated them to come to the U.S. to begin with? It's often thought, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of myths um, that kind of are shaped by Islamophobia that uh, create the idea that the reason why the early Arab immigrants came to the U.S. Um, is because of religious persecution. And so there's this assumption that because the early immigrants were Christian, that they came because they were being persecuted by Muslims in the Ottoman Empire. But in fact, if we look to the early immigrants, which I was um, discussing, they came in the late 1800s to the United States, and, and they were primarily Christian. They actually came out of a condition of economic crisis that took place in greater Syria. And it had to do with um, the ways that the production of silk thread was an important industry in the region. And it really peaked uh, after eight, the 1860s. So there was a great deal of farming that, that took place and entire families were working in the silk factories to generate income. And so what ended up happening is there was um, a disease that developed that ended up destroying the silk industry and it affected the production of silk. This ended up being one of one catalyst for the early immigration. And also there was a time where at the time in the late 1800s, China and Japan uh, that globally, the silk trade shifted to China and Japan because they were able to deliver cheaper and a cheaper and steadier supply of silk to the French. So prices of Syrian silk dropped and never recovered. So that so that contributed to an economic crisis in, um, you know, that began in the 1890s, which is when you had that what's often called the first wave of Syrian immigration to the United States. Um, so the, why, we might ask, why were they mostly Christian? And part of it is that Christians, um, these Christians had more interaction with the West than Muslims did. So being Christian, they interacted with European and American missionaries. They also were in more interaction in terms of business with uh, you know the broader Western world. And so those kind of networks and interactions contribute and make immigration more, and they make it easier, and they open up opportunities. So we have these early immigrants who were classified as Turks, and they're mostly Christians from what was known as Greater Syria in the Ottoman Empire. And where did they come to? New York? So as far as where did they settle, uh, of course, early they came primarily to, I mean, they came through New York and Ellis Island. And so by 1900, more than half of the early immigrants were uh, resided in New York uh, and also nearby areas, the Hudson River in New Jersey, 
Um, and there, so there were, um, by 1924, there were 25 Syrian-owned and operated silk factories in Patterson and West Hoboken, New Jersey alone. So, so that definitely is the, the, you know, the primary region. And then um, there were also um, folks who moved to some of the Midwestern towns um, cities like Pittsburgh, Newcastle, Pennsylvania, Detroit, and Michigan City. So when did they get to the West Coast? So in the in the early years, um, which is like, you know, in the uh, first half of uh, the 20th century, we had uh, Arab immigrants in small numbers coming to the West Coast. Um, you know, I know from my research in the Bay Area, there were uh, especially immigrants from Lebanon who uh, were in the Bay Area uh, starting around the 1920s. And then later after World War II and a lot of growing crises in the Middle East and the expulsion of Palestinians, you have a larger influx of Palestinian immigrants. Would you say that um, in the 1800s, largely we have these Christian migrants coming from what is the Levant for economic reasons, but post-World War II, we see like waves and waves of war and upheaval in the Middle East, and that's kind of the primary motivating factor for migrants coming in the second half of the 1900s? Yes. Okay, and, and that's kind of where like my family um, came, and I guess Soraya even most recently, but all of us kind of ended up here as generally as a result of some kind of upheaval in Palestine, right. Lebanon, Syria, right? right? And that's where we can place ourselves. So I know like in my family, even in the 70s, Arabs had a much more positive view of the U.S. and were welcomed and were able to establish lives in the U.S. Is that true? And have Arab perceptions of the U.S. changed over time? I definitely think that is true. Um, Arab perceptions have changed over time. In fact, um, in my book, Arab America, I write, um, I, I conducted interviews, a great deal of interviews for that book with older Arab immigrants in the Bay Area of California. And I document their experiences in um, you know, like the 1950s and 60s and 70s, and they talk about how um, they talk about the differences between that period and the current period, um, and how they, you know, they never felt um, discrimination or exclusion based on Arab descent or even uh, people who were politically active. Um, you know, didn't, weren't targeted in the same way as they are today. And what do you think changed that? So, of course, it's um, the, ex the U.S. empire building in the Arab region in terms of, especially after 1967, when the U.S. affirmed its alliance with Israel. Um, you know, it's documented extensively in the writings and speeches and of Arab Americans in terms of how after 1967, a general sense uh, that the U.S. has waged a war against us kind of developed after 1967. So people write about the media war against Arab Americans and Arabs, the, you know, the U.S. government war against Arabs and Arab Americans. So this was all, you know, a post-1967 issue. There was also a change in the demographic of Arabs that were coming. Is that correct? There were, it was yeah, not just Levantine it, Arabs anymore, and there was an increase in the Muslim population, right? Exactly. Due to changing uh, U.S. immigration law uh, and more lax opportunities for immigration, um, you had also Arabs coming from nearly every Arabic-speaking country by that time. 
more equal numbers of Christians and Muslims, and then also people from diverse class backgrounds. And so uh, you have, you know, changes uh, in the demographics of Arab immigrants, as well as changing U.S. Uh, political dynamics in relation to the Arab region and Arab immigrants. Was was Islam an issue early on? So when we talk about, um, you know, in the Bay Area, I know you mentioned in your book that, you know, they had Arabs had really assimilated and they didn't face any problems with the white people, the white community. But you know, was it because they were primarily Christian Arabs or were there Muslims as well? And did Islam not really have that like face of terrorism associated with it? Um, well, one book I recommend, it's Edward Said's book, Covering Islam. It, it actually gives a history to the rise of, um, you know, anti-Muslim kind of discourse in the U.S. that grew, especially in after the 1979 Iranian Revolution, but of course, there's always been um, a Western construct of the Muslim as backwards, uncivilized, the enemy, um, evil, misogynist, patriarchal, um, highly sexual, you know, all sorts of colonialist concepts of the Muslim have existed in, throughout, you know, especially um, throughout European history. Um, and, and however, the construct of the Muslim as you know, the uh, kind of like the enemy of the nation, the enemy of the U.S. nation kind of um, grew, especially after 1979, I would say, uh, but didn't kind of culminate into this, you know, the full on construct of the Muslim terrorist. Um, that kind of notion was consolidated uh, with the aftermath of September 11th and the U.S. war on terror. Right. I mean, I think one thing that a lot of people don't know about, so I can talk about it a little bit. I think what often gets lost in the discussion of Arab Americans and race is that the targeting of Arab Americans and the construct of Arabs as the potential enemy of the U.S. didn't start after September 11th. Um, in fact, there's a, a lack of knowledge about policies that were in place ever since, for example, 1972, President Nixon's Operation Boulder um, entailed the harassment of individuals of Arab descent and especially Arab students who were targeted by the state. They were denied their uh, constitutional rights. It allowed the FBI to harass individuals with phone calls and visits without evidence of criminal activity. So these are sort of policies that were already in place and set the stage and groundwork for what was to come with the Patriot Act and the war on Arabs and Muslims and South Asians after September 11th that, you know, we often talk about. And there, in 1978, there was Operation Abscam. And, and that was when FBI Director William Webster, he had agents pose as rich Arabs and try to bribe politicians and elected officials. And the whole idea was to create the impression that Arabs are a corrupt, corrupting factor in American politics. And, and these, you know, these... Um, kind of events were taking place in the context of the U.S.-Arab oil wars and the early years of the U.S. building its um, economic and military-based empire in the region that we've kind of seen, of course, grow in more recent years. Right. And then there's a major case in 1987 of eight Palestinian activists and a Kenyan. Uh, it's called the LA-8 case, and it was um, where these folks were targeted for removal uh, based on uh, 
constitutionally protected activity. They were activists who, you know, were expressing their freedom of speech, um, their their right to freedom of speech. And they ended up in this major court case that went on for 20 years and made it to the Supreme Court. And so this idea of like surveilling Arab Americans, um, punishing Arab Americans for constitutionally protected activity has been around for decades. So as far as the U.S. government is concerned, they've they've known about the Arab community They've been watching us. They've been tapping us. They've been oppressing us. But, I, you know, it seems to me and, and probably a lot of our listeners that Arabs as an ethnic group in the U.S. seem to be sort of invisible until 9-11. Um, would you say that's that's true? Mm-hmm. That is a great point. In fact, for me, a, a personal story here, I was doing research on these topics in the early 90s, and I was told in, you know, by senior faculty in the university that I was committing academic suicide because the topic was just so uh, insignificant and and it wouldn't be perceived as even a topic to do research on. And then I finished my PhD after um, right after September 11th. And of course, the context changed then. So there, there were writings by Arab American writers long before September 11th and people who wrote fiction, social science scholarship. There is a book, it's called Food for Our Grandmothers, Writings by Arab American and Arab Canadian Feminists. And in the intro, the author, who goes now by the name Joe Cotty, writes uh, that Arab American women are the most invisible of the invisibles. And in fact, in the 90s, a lot of what Arab American studies was publishing um, used the language of invisible, the language of, um, I, I wrote an essay called Ambiguous Insiders. And, and this whole discussion of Arabs as white but not quite ambiguous insiders, invisible, what, that referred to a dynamic where Arab Americans were both classified as Caucasian and at the same time constructed by the media and government discourse as um, different than Caucasians, as other, as, um, you know, and, and uh, increasingly since the 1990s, um, since the first Gulf War of the 90s, where there was a great deal of harassment and discrimination against Arab American individuals, you know, there was a, 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 a you know, a sense of that Arab American that anti-Arab racism existed in the U.S., um, but at the same time, Arab Americans were classified as white, and that kind of contributed to the sense of invisibility among Arab American writers and scholars. I think that's an extremely poignant point for both Americans and Arabs to um, process. But how do you think that Arabs have internalized that dichotomy and to move forward in American society and kind of reclaim our own identities, what what do you think that Arab Americans should uh, be doing? So the more the U.S. kind of went to war in the Arab region, so if you take the Gulf War of the 1990s, uh, the more other non-Arabs understood that these issues were serious. So even in the 90s, where on like an official scale, there was no Arab American, there was no recognition of Arab American issues on the ground in social movements and activist movements and anti-war movements and racial justice movements, there was a, a you know, increasing um, awareness and attention to these issues. So it kind of opened the door for 
Arab American activists and scholars to work in these broader contexts of ethnic studies, of uh, people of color based movements of racial justice movements. I mean, it was kind of challenging because when Arab Americans would come into those spaces, uh, there was a there were there was often um, a lack of information and understanding. And so people had to spend a lot of time just even defining what the term Arab means because the U.S. media has such, done such a great job in right. misinforming the public. So it, was, it wasn't easy. It wasn't that Arab Americans came into these spaces and started working on their issues. It was that it was a struggle to be in those spaces. And in those spaces, it was like really starting from scratch. Wow, that's very interesting. And that's totally something I've experienced even in my lifetime. Of yeah, sure. Even in, you know, Israel-Palestine organizing, instead right. of being able to take, you know, organize on taking action in campuses to kind of like change U.S. policy, I spent all my time trying to educate people about what Palestine was, what mm -hmm. Israel was, and the conflict in general. And of course, that even stems from a lack of understanding of Arab identity amongst people of color, let alone the white people. But um, one thing we did not go through, um, and we really need to just do this because it's essential, is just when Arabs officially become white on the census of America, why we are, I know we started from the early histories, but what ended up happening with those court cases where we ended up being categorized as white, and I think now there are movements to change that, but what were the benefits of being white? So Arab Americans' racial positioning continued to shift uh, ever since the first period of immigration in the late 1800s, all the way through the early 1940s. So even in 1942, there was a Muslim Arab from Yemen who was denied U.S. citizenship on the basis that they were classified as not white. So this just kept going on all those years. But then in 1944, there was a decision that classified Arabs as white, and that kind of marked the end of those uh, challenges and debates. And that made Arab immigrants suitable for naturalization. And that just stayed in place after that. Um, and I think that the benefits at the time were, of course, naturalization. But you know, what, what does being white mean for um, immigrant communities? Like, why is that a desired label? So here's the, what's important. We have to distinguish between earlier periods when whiteness led to naturalization. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. Okay. So you want to be so naturalized. To that from, from the changes that happen in U.S. history where the argument that race is based in biology were refuted. And so then what happens when officially the U.S kind of officially takes the stance that race is no longer constituted by a person's biological makeup. So when the U.S. decides that, the U.S. doesn't then get rid of race altogether. Race, racial classification remains as part of the census, and it continues to be used, and especially after the civil rights movement, race continues to be used uh, in order to as sort of like a band-aid solution to fix the problem of racism. So what happens in the United States is even though there isn't kind of an agreement that race as biology no longer exists, there's still the realization that racism exists. And so, uh, you know, so that is the reason for using uh, racial classification systems today is to say, 
well, we need to count how many African-Americans they are so we can figure out, you know, um, let's say, you know, to be able to do like needs assessment studies of African-American communities and figure out what the issues are that are taking place on the ground around healthcare or housing or education, et cetera. And so, um, you know, so today, of course, we still have racial categories, but they work in a really different way than than before. So the U.S. says that it's not granting citizenship or naturalization based on race, whereas before it actually said it was doing that, whereas today it still does that. It just doesn't say it's doing that. You know, so, of course, we know that some immigrants have an easier time getting to immigrate to the U.S. than others. To answer your question about, um, you know, what's the purpose of Arabs being white now? I mean, I think, um, you know, this is a huge can of worms. I mean, some people say that it benefits the U.S. for Arabs to not have a racial category because then they can't fight what's happening. Some people argue that Arab American leaders for many years wanted to maintain the white classification because of their, you know, commitment to assimilation. Um, There's another reality that Arab American communities have had a hard time deciding on what category to use, like whether to use Middle Eastern, Arab American. So there are a lot of factors involved in, you know, whether or not the category would exist. But I think a big issue is having to prove that discrimination exists and that on on different levels, economically, um, et cetera. So... So, and so, the, so it's a very challenging and difficult struggle. Right. And uh, what's the status of of um, our market, our like our category in the census? Because I know uh, some Arab American activists are trying to change change it to like <clears throat> be it's a separate category, uh, especially in terms of we don't have enough like we don't have accurate data on Arab American demographics. So, like, you know, Dearborn, Michigan is probably considered all white. Right. I mean, you are hitting the nail on the head that it's a major, major crisis that we don't have accurate information on Arab Americans because they're classified as Caucasian. So if you look at universities, I work at a university, there's no way for me to advocate for the needs of my students because I don't even know how many Arab students we have uh, and what their needs actually are. So there's no way to do research to figure out, you know, what their economic backgrounds are, or how many of them are immigrants, how many of them are first-time college uh, students. Um, so it's a serious, serious problem across the board. So currently, um, the U.S. Census um, is supposed to be testing the new classification that's on the table right now. It's MENA, Middle East, North Africa. And they're testing to see whether it will be included in the 2020 census. We're definitely going to have to bring you back on because we didn't even get to go into like the Bay Area, you know, and your your work is unique in that it does highlight our unique Arab American community in the Bay Area. Thanks, Nadine. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. It's so great. Thank you for listening to Arabiyat. Our theme song has been by Muqata'a. The track is called Ahiyat. You can follow him on soundcloud.com slash B-O-I-K-U-T-T. And please drop us a line at our email, arabiyat.podcast at gmail.com. That's A-R-A-B-I-Y-A-A-T dot podcast at gmail.com. Just let us know if you have any questions, if you have any comments. We'd love to hear from you.